no, you've had uh, some scary people uh, getting a lot of votes, and and it's striking because still Austria is one of the, you know, one of the better stories. Probably the worst trade deal ever agreed yeah, to. Yeah, the höchste Arbeitslosenzahl seit dem Zweiten Weltkrieg. Breaking news here: stocks all around the world are tanking because of the crisis on Wall Street. Hey guys, welcome to episode two of Standard Economics. My name is Andreas Sator. I'm a journalist with the Austrian Daily The Standard. And this is a podcast where I publish interviews I do for this very newspaper. Today's guest is Paul Krugman, something I'm very proud of. He's the winner of the Nobel Prize of Economics, which doesn't exist, and honestly, probably the most famous economist in the whole world. We had a really nice talk, spoke, among other things, about what populism has to do with economics, and other stuff like, should we just stop using euros? Because, to be fair, this project really doesn't work. Uh, one thing you should know, I recorded this interview back in September, so Trump wasn't elected back then, <sighs> those days, but that doesn't really matter for the conversation, I promise you, it's still 100% relevant for today and probably the whole next year, whatever, enjoy. Okay, the three main topics I want to talk to you about are trade, Trump and the euro. Okay. And, I mean, you did a lot of research about trade, and I think trade is a topic that interacts with a lot of other stuff that's going on in the right. world right now. So I would like to start with the question, do you think that globalization went too far? Um, basically, no. I mean, the, uh, I mean, globalization is several different things. Um, and if we ask, did trade in goods go drastically too far, no. I mean, I think there was, it looks a bit as if there was some private sector overreach. The supply chains got too long and there's some retrenchment now, um, which is why trade, global trade has stopped growing faster than, than world GDP. Um, but the, uh, there were certainly some difficulties, uh, but I look and see that countries that had good social insurance systems coped with them pretty well. Uh, most of the problems that people have people agitated in the United States are not actually about trade. Uh, they may blame it on trade, but that's not the issue. Um, international capital mobility, um, there was probably too much liberalization of, of capital flows in emerging markets and in general. Um, capital flows have not been the positive force that some people said they would. Um, but no, I, I, I think we should have been, economists should have been more honest about the fact that there are losers as well as winners from trade. Uh, but I don't think it went too far uh, from a, a global point of view. Free trade is, at least free, free trade agreements are under attack in, in, in Europe as well and in the US too. If we look at Trump and Clinton and the IMF and the OECD are, are, are concerned about an increase in protectionism around the right. world. Do you think there, there's a reason to be worried? So far, we've seen very little actual protectionist movement. I mean, lots of people thought that the, the global recession would bring about a, a major protectionist wave, and it, it didn't. Um, 
And the opposition to free trade agreements, uh, really the agreements that we're arguing about now are not free trade agreements. They're, they're called trade agreements, but they're really about other things. So uh, I guess TTIP is, is on ice now or, or maybe gone. Uh, but, and, but TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, but part of the reason is it's not a trade agreement. It's the, the key parts are not about trade. They're about intellectual property and dispute settlement. And both of them are highly ambivalent. It's not clear even if you are a free trade advocate that you should support that treaty. It's not really about free trade. Um, now, in terms of more protectionism, yeah, if we had a President Trump, uh, he could really rip apart the whole world trading system. Um, it's uh, people who've analyzed the the legal framework say it would be really quite easy for him to do enormous damage, and you might say, well, that wouldn't make economic sense. But very few things he does make sense. So, um, although I have to say, there are things that that what the damage he might do to the world trade system is is kind of secondary. Uh, to some of the other damage he might do. So I, but no, I mean it. But the risk would come from this populist backlash that is fundamentally not about trade. It's about race relations. It's about immigration. Uh, trade was not. Trade is is more of a convenient scapegoat than it is the actual problem. And some follow-up questions. You 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 spoke about private sector overreach when we talked about globalization yeah. in the beginning. What can you be a little oh, bit more specific? Yeah. So you had in the. Um, from about 1990 to 2010, we had an unprecedented expansion of world trade, um, hyperglobalization, some people call it. And it, a lot of that involved breaking up the manufacture of individual goods into many pieces done in different countries. So you'd do a little bit to something in, in Japan, do something more to it in Korea, then do something else to it in China, and then ship it to the United States. Um, This has costs in terms of not just shipping, but just the complexity of the, of the transactions and the time it takes, that it looks as if manufacturers somewhat underestimated. And so after about 2010, you started to see some manufacturing moved back closer to the, to the markets. Um, There was, uh, there has been for the past several years in the U.S., we've seen rapidly rising wages for sewing machine operators. And the reason is that garment manufacture, much of it you still want to do in Bangladesh where wages are low, but some of it you want to do close to the customer. So some of it was moved back to the United States. So that's what I mean, that there was a, the, this uh, vertical disintegration, these long value chains got too long. The, the and The private sector has rediscovered the advantages of, of a little bit more simplicity in, in production. When you said maybe capital market liberal, liberalization went too far, if we, if we focus on, on industrialized countries like Europe and the US and not about emerging markets, do you think it's, it's time to, to overthink that money can flow around freely? Well, it, countries... For the most part, advanced countries that um, uh, have their own currencies can handle it, although not always. So, I mean, in practice has actually changed a little bit. Um, think about Iceland. 
which was whipsawed. It, you know, vast amounts of money flowed in through those Icelandic banks, and then the then then panic and collapse. Um, and that clearly was not a good thing. The freedom of money to flow did damage. Um, Iceland responded with controls on capital movement, uh, and that's a, that's an advanced country, and it was a good thing. It bought them a breathing space. It was a kind of a curfew on on the financial riot, um, and uh, and the IMF approved, which is also showing some intellectual flexibility. So that's the kind of thing I think on a, on a sustained basis. Uh, having capital controls year in, year out um, is a problem. It just eventually starts being a, uh, rent, <coughs> creating cost, creating corruption, but uh, willingness to say, look, it, in times of, of financial uh, disarray, limiting capital movement, um, that's, that's a valid uh, uh, policy even, even for advanced countries. One, one big argument for the European Commission and also for the U.S. presidency for, for TTIP is that um, we need to set global standards before, before China does it. Do you think that's a legitimate argument? I'm not sure. I mean, it's not clear that there will be global standards. Um, and as I, don't un I haven't done as much work on TTIP. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't done much at all. On TPP... If you really press the advocates hard, they will usually concede that the economic case is not overwhelming, and they'll say it's a geopolitical mm -hmm. case. And it's more almost about the symbolism of having an agreement um, rather than, than leaving uh, the current sort of hodgepodge of relations and then, then China looms. And so maybe, I have to say, I think these things are a little bit subtle. The idea that there's, and maybe too subtle, the idea that that you can justify stuff that you really can't make a very clear economic case for because there's a sort of uh, hypothetical rising China story is um, it's 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 really hard to get concrete about it and that makes me suspicious but yeah if there if there were no I guess I would have said that if if it were just uh, if it were a, a more limited agreement and if the in particular, if the dispute settlement side didn't look so uh, industry friendly, I would maybe those geopolitical arguments would be uh, more compelling. But um, you know, China, what what we do or don't do on trade agreements is not going to make is not going to make the difference about uh, uh, not going to make a big difference on China's role in the world. If we think about trade patterns and if we assume that TPP is going to happen, which we... Bad assumption. Bad assumption. Yeah. But that's one, it's just one argument uh, fans of TTIP are making in Europe, so yeah. I want to have your opinion on it. If TPP is happening and we don't have TTIP, uh, will the European economy suffer because um, people are for other countries in TPP like Japan or... Vietnam, it's a lot uh, easier to trade with the U.S., so they trade with the U.S. instead. Well, it's, it's only few. marginally easier. All of these things are mm. very... It's not clear how much difference it really makes to trade. And uh, uh, so I, I, I wouldn't take that very seriously. And, and, and I don't think TPP is going to happen. Uh, I mean, it's... Uh, I don't think... You know, it, I don't think that the last... 
assuming she makes it, that Hillary Clinton is going to waste political capital on, on that in her first days in office, and I very much doubt that Obama can push it through in the lame duck. So I think the whole thing is pretty much a dead letter. It was a, it was a, uh, the, it, it was very much fighting the last war on policy, and it was the wrong time to do this. And um, one follow-up question to what Trump could do to the economic system where the, the U.S. is central. Do you think it's really dangerous? Does the U.S. president have that much might or power yeah, to do uh, a lot of things, well, a couple of things. First of all, quite a lot of policy, certainly on trade policy, is uh, it's more judicial in its form than, than legislative. Uh, a lot of the things we do, whether it's anti-dumping duties, whatever, are decided by parts of the executive branch through quasi-judicial proceedings rather than by legislation. Um, and those branches of... of the federal government are, they act as independent bodies, but you know, fundamentally they serve at the pleasure of the president. So a president who doesn't care about norms, which Trump would certainly be, could very easily just instantly politicize these things. So the whole system of, of trade relations could quickly fall apart uh, uh, simply because you have somebody in the White House who doesn't care about uh, about respecting the historical norms. So, no, I think that the, the, the damage is, is huge. Um, then on top of that, uh, given the uh, you know, Trump victory would almost certainly mean a Republican Congress as well, and given the amount of strength that Republicans have shown in opposing uh, him so far, there's no reason to believe that they would be uh, anything but completely rubber stamping whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. Um, if we try to interpret the, the public outcry, which, which I think we can call 50% thinking about voting for Trump, we can call it a, an outcry. Do you think we can learn something about that, that we didn't uh, care about some, some kind of people in the past? Or is it just um, irrational, it's people are, they are racists and... Well, I don't know that it's irrational. I think the... The core Trump support is uh, white Americans who feel that it's it's not their country um, and not their country anymore, and they're not entirely wrong about that. It's the changes, the diversity are are real, and um, now they they would in fact make their own lives much worse if if they elect Trump. But their sense that something is happening to them, which has very little to do with economics, is real. Um, now, it's actually not half the country. It's a little over 40% of the country that says it will vote for Trump. And, mm -hmm. and um, there's a significant number of most of the young people who are currently saying that they will either stay home or vote for a third-party candidate because they've heard terrible things about Hillary Clinton. And uh, that's, that I blame more on, uh, on bad media coverage than on anything real. Um, so I, fundamentally... The U.S. has a, a non-Trumpist majority, but it's uh, it's not as big a majority as you would like, and it's uh, and it may not come out in force. Although I'm feeling a lot better about that uh, than I did uh, 72 hours ago. <laughs> now, in in Europe, we also have this populist backlash, also in Austria. Yeah, and. <clears throat> 
<clears throat> if any, did, did you read anything about Austria? About Only a little bit, and mm. I know. No, you've had uh, some scary people uh, getting a lot of votes, and and it's striking because, although I know, of course, no, everyone, every economy has some people who are left behind and disadvantaged, but still, Austria is one of the, you know, one of the better stories, and but nonetheless, people feel, and, and again, it's not, they're not totally wrong. Uh, if you are a... Uh, uh, I mean, in the U.S., if you are a, a, a white male, uh, in uh, in Europe, if you are a Western European white male, then uh, there's a sense that the the, the ground uh, under you is shifting, and you don't like it uh, is not entirely irrational. <coughs> I want to connect this with the euro because a lot of. I mean, you also you also wrote a lot about um, yeah. the eurozone is not an optimal currency area, and to be one, we need more uh, integration in the in. But this populist backlash, this uh, nationalist movement, makes it completely impossible that yeah. something like this is going to happen. What what's the solution? Should we kick down the can, kick down the can, the road further? Is it or should we break up the eurozone? Well, the yeah. The, so the yeah. The the backlash nationalism certainly means that establishing a transfer union, which is basically what it would take to make it work well, is completely off the table. The idea that Austrian taxpayers would be on the hook for Greek health care is just not something we can imagine um, for a very long time. Now they probably could have it work stumbling along um, if as long as you have a banking union which is a very different kind of thing and a uh, um, and and a a better macroeconomic policy they actually achieve the two percent inflation or better still three percent inflation and given the the costs of breaking up the euro I would still try for that it, you you play for a, a, a a stumbling, imperfect system, but you do the best you can. Um, but you need to at least get that far. And banking union ought to be, uh, at the very least, you should have a, a European-wide system of of, uh, of deposit guarantees, bank supports. And there, you know, uh, maybe this is a good moment to revive that because banks can get in trouble anywhere. Think about Deutsche Bank, right? I mean, mm. you know, right now, we're not worried about Italian banks as much as we are about Deutsche Bank. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so that's what I, I would not call for a breakup of the euro now, even though I can see the and I still think Greece should have left, but the whole system, I think there's still a one last try to make it work. Mm. But if the Germans keep in charge of macroeconomics still, then we have a problem. And we have, yeah. But we have like two minutes more. Two minutes I can do, and then I'm going to need really need to go back and lie down. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, is there one if is there one thing if you would if you would need to think about one thing the media and public intellectuals and politicians don't talk um, uh, about it uh, and enough what what would we what would you think be? Oh wow! I like Not sure if I can boil it down that way, but you know we should be talking a lot more about climate than we are. Uh, fundamentally, all, everything else pales into insignificance compared with that. And climate action could be a, sol a solution to the macroeconomic problem as well. A really strong climate policy could be a source of economic stimulus for the for the, the next five, ten years. So, you know, 
it, it's it's astonishing how little we talk about it, even as the evidence that we're you know heading heading towards catastrophe keeps on mounting. Okay, All thank right. you very yeah, much. Thanks. All right. I'm sorry, I'm coming down sick as we go through oh. this. Uh...